off to the bench. Sometimes I stand on it, but. So the first really large group of migrants who came after the Yankees were the Irish. And of course they came uh, because they were trying to survive by leaving the famine. Elise Skyette and Gail Rosenberg lead edible history tours in Burlington. People sign up to walk a mile and a half around the city, sample food at five restaurants, and learn a little bit about local history. The group has gathered around Elise behind Union Station, where train travelers once arrived. And to Vermont, for some reason, there were more women who came. And when these women got here, a lot of them went up and they became servants for um, people up on the hill. Up on the hill means you'd made it, you had a lot of money, and you moved up to the hill. We think that stories are remembered more, one, when they're stories, and not just a listing of dates and the, what were considered the traditional heroes. Um, and the other is the food. Foods really carry memories, and I think we all know that. When you smell something familiar, it can carry you back to your childhood or where you grew up. So food and their smells and the traditions around preparing them is, really carries a lot of culture with it. The tours begin with a snack of quinoa salad, which leads to a discussion about the area's original inhabitants, the Abenaki. Many tourists may not have heard about Vermont's Native American community, or understand that people other than Yankees have lived in the Queen City. It really surprises people, all of the different groups that we have here from all different continents that came here and built this city. Lebanese, uh, Jewish, Irish, French Canadian, African American, Chinese, Italians. Elise is the author of Discovering Black Vermont, African American Farmers in Heinsberg, 1790 to 1890. Even before Vermont became a state, African Americans lived here, sometimes with Abenaki families. Dutch settlers were present in those early days, as well as French farmers who came down from Quebec. In fact, the first French newspaper in the U.S. was published in Burlington in the 1830s. A larger wave of Quebecois immigrants came to Chittenden County after the Civil War to work in the woolen mills. They were called the Chinese of the East because it mirrored the huge migration of Chinese in, uh, on the, to the West Coast. And um, it, it was not said kindly. They weren't terribly nice to migrants, you know, not necessarily now either. A lot of the French Canadians lived down here on the waterfront. The tour group crosses Battery Street. We call where we are right now the Semitic block. No, uh, nobody else does. This is just what we've decided to call it. There was a, um, a fruit warehouse, fruit and vegetable warehouse, owned by a Jewish man from Lithuania. Um, down at the other end, there was a restaurant owned by a Syrian man from Damascus. And down at the corner was the fruit company owned by the Fayettes, who came from Beirut. So they were Christian, Muslim, Arab, all down here, working together as friends and colleagues. The plaque on the Statue of Liberty promises freedom for the tired and the poor, but there's also a practical reason why our country, and our state, should accept newcomers. Well, research has shown that people who migrate, they're generally pushed out of somewhere. There's some kind of a push out of where they are, and there's some kind of a pull to someplace else. 
But the people who do actually move are the ones who are the most courageous, the most enterprising. They're the kind of people that you want in your society because they're going to keep it complex and vibrant. This is Before Your Time, presented by the Vermont Historical Society and Vermont Humanities. I'm your host, Lovejoy. Every episode, we go inside the stacks at the Vermont Historical Society to look at an object from their permanent collection that tells us something unique about our state. Then we take a closer look at the people, the events, or the ideas that surround each artifact. Today, we'll hear stories about people who came to Vermont as immigrants from the 19th century through 2019 and we'll examine the tension between Vermont's public image and its approach to immigration. But first, we'll visit the basement of the Vermont Historical Society with Executive Director Steve Perkins and Public Program Manager Amanda Gustin. And we're looking at a large steamer trunk, I think would be the best description of this. Um, It's a green kind of cardboard and wood construction uh, with metal banding on it. I think as we open this up, I don't know if you could hear it opening, uh, but we can smell the scent of uh, mothballs coming out of it. The yellow writing on top of the chest says M. Fukuda, seven out of seven. David Minoru Fukuda was born to Japanese parents in San Francisco in 1921. He spent the first 13 years of his life in the United States, and then in 1934, he moved with his family back to Japan, where he went to medical school. He was indeed in Japan during World War II, and what has been written um, was that um, you know he experienced the uh, atomic bombing of Nagasaki, and as a third-year medical student, helped treat the victims um, of that bombing. So... I think it's kind of interesting that he's born in America. Um, he goes and he spends his, his young adulthood uh, and much of his schooling uh, in Japan. And then he experiences the bombing at Nagasaki, which is done by Americans. Um, and then he still chooses to come back to the United States. There was a program in the 1950s um, that encouraged folks from other countries to participate in a residency program at the University College of Medicine. And uh, he was an anesthesiological resident resident there and ended up staying in Vermont and serving as a doctor here for the rest of his career. Dr. Fukuda worked at the Barry City Hospital and then the Central Vermont Medical Center for the rest of his career, 30 years practicing medicine in Vermont. It's easy to believe that Burlington, as our largest city, is unique when it comes to immigration, and most refugees to our state are indeed settled in Chittenden County. But other Vermont cities have a similar history of immigrants coming from all over the globe to join their communities, like Rutland, Brattleboro, and Barrie. I think even in the 1950s, if you wanted to talk about uh, the most uh, culturally diverse uh, areas of Vermont, Barrie was right near the top. Barrie was a very vibrant, immigrant-driven city. Still, few people of Japanese descent lived in Vermont at that time. So Dr. Fukuda and his wife, Mashiko Nakamura, were often asked to host visiting Japanese dignitaries by the state of Vermont, or by large corporations like National Life. We have a lot of objects in the Vermont Historical Society that represent the experiences of of immigrants and of people of different cultures who lived here in Vermont, who built their lives here in Vermont. Um, but often when we, when we talk and we think about immigrant experiences, we think about the, the choice to make the journey in the first place. So I kind of love that, that we have this trunk to, to represent that moment. Um, there's a before and an after, but there's always that decision to, to move. 
When you call your family in Mexico, they think you're in paradise because you're in America. They say, wow, you've really made it and you've got so much money. But in reality, it's really hard here and it's nothing like you imagined it would be back in Mexico. Everyone wants to come here with all these opportunities, but you struggle. You struggle a lot. This young woman from Mexico has asked to be called Guadalupe. In the opening pages of her comic book, we see her riding in a car after crossing the border to the United States. The driver says, it's too dangerous to stop. You'll have to urinate in a bottle. In another panel of the book about her life, Guadalupe says, People believe that crossing the border is the hardest part of the trip, but the worst part is finding a way to survive after you arrive. When many people hear Vermont, they picture cows, like the black and white Holsteins on Ben and Jerry's ice cream cartons. But much of the work on Vermont dairy farms is now done by people from Latin America. Over a thousand migrant laborers from Mexico and other countries milk cows, fix tractors, shovel manure, and take care of calves in our state. So we're a free health clinic for people who do not have health insurance and people who are underinsured. Julia Doucette is an outreach nurse at the Open Door Clinic in Middlebury. About half of the clinic's patients are agricultural immigrant workers. Recent changes to immigration policy have meant that undocumented workers are choosing to stay longer in Vermont since crossing the border is so difficult. People aren't, don't have the freedom to see their families every few years like they could before, and so with that long separation from their language and their culture and their family, you see increased um, depression, anxiety, there's a lot of stress. Many of the workers don't have driver's licenses and they stay close to the farms out of fear of being deported. The problems caused by this isolation led Julia to imagine a series of stories about the lives of these workers. The project became called El Viaje Mascaro in Spanish, the most costly journey. So really what it was was a way for someone to share a story that we could share with other workers and say, look, you're not the only one who is sitting at home drinking alone because you have no social outlet and you miss your family. You're not the only one who struggles to speak to your boss because he speaks English, you speak Spanish. We were always really clear the primary goal is to serve that community and to make sure there's a real value in seeing your story told or held up and shared or seeing somebody else's story and being able to say, oh yeah, I've had that experience. Well, it's made into a book. Merrick Bennett is a cartoonist from New Hampshire. He's written comic books based on Civil War diaries. He also runs workshops about ways to tell stories through comics. I have never appreciated comics and I have never really read them. But comic books turned out to be an excellent way for the clinic to help farm workers share their stories with each other. Comics are common in Latin America and can be enjoyed by people of all ages and literacy levels. Even if you can't read, you can really follow the story. And some of the pictures are so poignant that you really don't need words to understand what's going on. Comics also seem to help readers consider controversial issues. And I think comics are really good at in a non-confrontational way, showing you somebody else's little piece in a way that 
you're reading from panel to panel and you're interested in what happens next and you're involved, you're turning the page to see what happens next. Um, and it's a chance to present another or even multiple viewpoints of a complex issue. To make the comics, Julia, other clinic staff and volunteers, and faculty and staff from the UVM Department of Anthropology and UVM Extension's Bridges to Health program collected stories from migrant workers. The Vermont Folklife Center helped to connect cartoonists to the workers' stories to create the books. The Folklife Center, along with its partners, has now released 20 books of stories in both English and Spanish. So that was our original goal, was, I think, literally to mitigate isolation and loneliness in that population. What I actually found was that it was the storytellers themselves seemed to actually get the best effect from this project. Guadalupe first settled in North Carolina, but moved to Vermont to be with the father of her child. Her partner became abusive, and she eventually left the home they shared. A panel in her book shows her sleeping with her toddler in a truck beside a wintry Lake Champlain. It was good for me, too, because it was a way of getting it off my chest. It was something I carried with me for so many years, and I never talked to anyone about it. So it was good for me to get out all these details, so many details. And then it really felt like a weight was lifted off me. (laughs) Where it's had the biggest impact, which was not something I had even considered, is really in the English-speaking community and the people who um, weren't aware of these workers or had read about them in the news but hadn't really understood what their experiences were. Merrick Bennett helped create several of the El Viaje comic books, including one about a mechanic who asked to be called El Migrante, the migrant. He's not here because he wants to fix tractors in Vermont. He's here because this is the only way his kids can go to school, and he's putting his kids through college. And the choice he has to make is he's out of their lives. Not entirely. They communicate by phone, but he's not there in Mexico with them. Some of the workers have shared their comic books with their families back home. So when my story came out, I mailed it home to my mom, and she read it. And without saying anything, she knew that it was about me. They were sad to hear about the situation, but they also understood and supported me. My mom said to me, I'm so glad you're not with that person who hurt you. Today, Guadalupe is married to a man who is a good father, and they live in a home in Vermont with their two children. They plan to return to Mexico someday, but are glad that their children are learning English and going to school. I say, I do local history. Oh, what are you working on? Well, here's a story about a guy who came up from Honduras and how they came to be here in New England. Really? I didn't think that was a New England story, but yeah, it is. Did you just put milk in your coffee? Well, you touch upon this story. Debates about who belongs here, who the right kind of people are, and whether Vermont even needs more people. These are conversations that have been happening almost since the state was founded. Alonzo Valentine had this idea that French Canadians were dissipated and that the local Yankees had all married their cousins and that the rural landscape, human landscape, was a mess and was full of dissipated people. 
and that somehow Swedes were better than those people and would distinguish themselves as superior to the locals. But what actually happened was that the Swedes that Valentine recruited and then which people largely forgot about, they became just like the people who were surrounding them. This is Northern Vermont University professor Paul Searles. His new book is Repeopling Vermont, The Paradox of Development in the 20th Century. He's discussing Alonzo Valentine, who was directed by the state in 1889 to look into the problem of declining population in Vermont's rural areas. I began to wonder if maybe Valentine was actually the biggest genius you ever imagined, as if he had been sitting around with a bunch of his friends in early 1889 and been like, what we need is a gimmick. We need something sort of ridiculous that will let people around the country know that Vermont farms can be purchased relatively cheaply. And what are we going to come up with? How about recruiting Swedes? Wouldn't that be a good idea? The debate about the wisdom of this idea raged across the state. People who, on the one hand, said that this was a wonderful idea and would surely prove the salvation of rural Vermont, and on the other hand, people in the state who absolutely could not understand on any level why recruiting Swedes and giving them farms made any sense at all. A constant refrain was, if we have so many abandoned farms, I know plenty of young kids in Vermont who would like to have them for themselves. Uh, The strange thing about it is that as much as Valentine was talking about Vermont being full of uh, abandoned farms, the 1880 census is the one that shows the largest number of farms at any time in Vermont's history. And so this program didn't make any sense to people on a number of levels. And I think the most important level on which it didn't make sense to, to people in rural Vermont is the idea that somehow Swedes would become better Vermonters than, say, French Canadians or Irish people. The plan to bring people to Vermont from Sweden is not as random as it seems. The idea was, of course, that you could engineer the human landscape by pushing out the French Canadians and bringing in Swedes, because don't you know, Swedes are tall and have straight teeth and blonde hair, and most of all, they're Protestants. So therefore, they will surely become better Vermonters more quickly than French Canadians ever could. Valentine did get money from the state for his plan, and around 50 people from Sweden came to Vermont in the spring of 1890. They settled in three towns, Wilmington, Verscher, and Landgrove. Results were mixed. Some newspapers were saying the Swedes were very happy and very contented and charmed by the possibilities for acquiring farms and were very glad to have... um, emigrated. Uh, Other reports said that the Swedes were very unhappy and that they were leaving and that they were miserable and in a state of poverty. The group in Verscher left almost immediately, but the communities in Wilmington and Landgrove stayed without any further support from Valentine. In the fall of 1890, Valentine applied to the legislature to renew his position so he could continue his work. His appeal was denied. And so what you begin to see is that the Swedes began to intermarry, they began to build personal relationships, they began to become very much quite immersed in the local community. The experiment with recruiting people from Sweden to come to Vermont may have remained a strange footnote, except that Valentine's efforts to promote Vermont foreshadowed how the state would market itself in the 20th century. What happened over time was that what Uh, many people in Vermont in the 1880s saw as Vermont's greatest weakness 
its rural landscape, its small towns, its uh, tight communities of people who didn't like change, came to be Vermont's greatest asset because there was a taste for those things in other parts of the country. Vermont's greatest attraction was that it was unlike the places where people were coming from. Uh, It stood in contrast to those places. And so therefore, Vermont needed to be carefully cultivated over time to continue to look like what outsiders expected it to look like. And that particularly means that Vermont's communities needed to remain on a small scale. This need to market Vermont as a tourist destination has impacted how Vermonters have seen immigration. By the time you get into the 20th century, uh, Vermonters wanted to attract people to the state, um, but they didn't want the state's communities to dramatically grow or look different. They wanted people, certainly, who grew up in small towns to remain in those small towns, and they wanted people from outside to move to those towns and invigorate them and help grow the local economy. And they wanted them to remain the same size, uh, which is a trick. This is the paradox that Paul writes about in his book. And so Vermont has, to this day, a strange relationship with immigration in that it is fundamentally important that we attract people to this state and so that those people can help grow the state and improve the state and make it more prosperous. But Vermonters also, to an extent, don't want the state to change at all. They like it the way it is and have put an enormous number of safeguards in place to prevent Vermont from changing too dramatically. Let's stay together, especially when we're up on Church Street. It could be very busy up there. Although this is The Burlington Edible History Tour can deflate some stereotypes that people hold about Vermont, such as it being heaven for beer lovers. Many are surprised to learn that we didn't have a legal brewery in the state for about 100 years, and that food in Vermont can be something other than Yankee fare, like pot roast and baked beans. Sometimes when people use the word ethnic, they think that Yankee is like this big normal group and they're white, and they're Yankees, they're Anglo-Saxons, they're Protestants. And then they think of the word ethnic incorrectly as something different from, something exotic, um, people of color. And that's something else that we try to get across through this tour, is that no, there is a Yankee ethnicity, everybody has ethnicity, and they're, they're all equal in many ways. They're just different cultural traditions. Cream cheese, hear that? Cream cheese and vanilla paste. The tour stops at a new restaurant on Main Street, Poco, to sample a cream cheese dish. The restaurant started as a food cart. Here's Gail. Some trends that people know about food carts, uh, farm to table, seem new. And they were a way of life of the migrants. And we have found food carts and trucks back in the late 1890s. They were on Main Street. They were by City Hall. And then they graduate to a horse and a wagon. Then they graduate to cars. And, um, and then they graduate to a brick-and-mortar store. And it's still happening today. It happened with a number of people that we researched in the 19th century. Today, Skinny Pancakes started that way. We have Hong's Dumplings now on mm-hmm. Pearl Street. She started out on Church Street. So it's been- Similarly, the Burlington Jewish community had its origins in a group of traveling peddlers. We know in this area, in the 1880s, that there were peddlers that were plying the lake on either side. The Jewish peddlers would try and assemble on Friday nights, 
being Orthodox from the old country, it was tradition to come together for the celebration of Sabbath on Friday nights, and they needed at least 10 males in order to, uh, a minion in order to, to actually conduct the service. Jeff Potash is a historian who's fascinated with how a community of Jewish immigrants maintained itself as a culturally distinct part of Burlington for almost four generations. Uh, a French-Canadian uh, coffin maker, of all things, on North Winooski Avenue let them use his shop on Friday nights. And so it's no accident that the origins of the Burlington Little Jerusalem community situate itself in that little immigrant spot. Uh, around North Winooski and Archibald Street. Jewish families soon followed. The new arrivals to Burlington were part of a huge migration of Eastern European Jews to this country. Many of these new Vermonters came from Lithuania, and they founded a synagogue in 1885. By 1900, there were nearly a thousand Eastern European Jews living in what was called Little Jerusalem in Burlington. One of the key dimensions of a European shtetl, of a village, was that it produced the, the essential goods and services to maintain an Orthodox Jewish community. And that essentially meant it had to have a kosher butcher, or they needed to slaughter animals in, a, in, in the kosher style. They needed to have co kosher bakers, grocers. Subsequently, uh, the idea of community and the idea of reconstructing or recreating a village was at the foundation of what they were imagining when they came to Burlington. Uh, Along with Aaron Goldberg, Jeff gathered oral histories with people from the area's Jewish community and researched how other Vermonters reacted to the new arrivals. I mean, the 1880s, what's fascinating to me is that uh, uh, Vermonters have a very definite notion of what Jews are, even though they rarely see one. Um, you know, I was, I was fascinated, for instance, I was looking at... Um, uh, advertisements in the 1880s. Um, we don't carry Jew goods. We don't practice Jew tricks. Um, so they knew, you know, in their minds that there was something about Jews that was different, that, you know, was attached to traditional prejudices. Though the newcomers faced prejudice and exclusion, they were mostly accepted by their new neighbors. Within Burlington, when the Jews come in, in the 1880s and, and 90s, they're an oddity. Um, they don't seem to suffer any persecution, uh, quite, quite the opposite. They seem to be tolerated, and by 1900, the Free Press is writing about this Jewish colony in Burlington, you know, describing just how industrious they are. Over generations, the Jewish community in Burlington followed what became a time-honored path for immigrants, becoming Americans, like Guadalupe's children learning English in 2019. Um, there are pivotal moments in time, um, you know, the first Jewish lawyer in Vermont, um, you know, the first Jewish doctor. I mean, the, these are underscore um, that, that, uh, that are people who, uh, you know, are very much, you know, invested in, in social mobility and, uh, and, and uplifting themselves um, do, do make uh, su substantial use of, of educational opportunities. Little Jerusalem truly moved from being an insular and culturally distinct community, with the Second World War and the arrival in 1947 of a new rabbi named Max Wall. His initial sense is he didn't want to be here, um, but given that he is planting the flag of what was then modern Judaism, conservative Judaism, uh, he comes in 47 and ultimately with extraordinary success by 52 builds a massive new synagogue on the hill, 
on a piece of property that originally restricted Jews and reaches out in a dramatic way uh, to colleagues across the religious spectrum, becomes, you know, best friends with Bishop Joyce and, and uh, the Episcopal Bishop and just really launches, uh, you know, a sense of, of interfaith uh, interaction. Uh, you know, on a scale, really, which is transformative. It's a different era. Rabbi Wall reached out to the greater community, and Jews opened businesses that were then patronized by all Burlington residents. The Burlington Jews may have gradually become Americans, but they still remembered their origins, their history, their shtetl in the Queen City. The people with whom we interviewed, you know, were astoundingly uh, uh, positive about the uniqueness of their experience. Uh, uh, and they love to uh, talk about the distinctiveness you know, of that community and the degree to which they were largely isolated and insulated, you know, really up through the Second World War. And that, I think, is what continues to inspire me. It's a curious question in my mind. How and why did that happen in, of all places, Burlington, Vermont? Before Your Time is presented by Vermont Humanities and the Vermont Historical Society. This episode was produced by Ryan Newswanger and Amanda Gustin. Thanks to our guests, Elise Guyette, Gail Rosenberg, Steve Perkins, Guadalupe, Julia Doucette, Merrick Bennett, Paul Searles, and Jeff Potash. Gina Robinson translated Guadalupe's statements. And thanks to the Open Door Clinic and the Vermont Folklife Center for sharing with us the stories from The Most Costly Journey. Before Your Time comes out every month. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend to check it out. You can find photos, comic books, and links related to this month's episode on our website, beforeyourtime.org. Thanks for listening.